And again, thanks uh, for tuning in, those of you who are joining us online. We've got folks, uh, a lot of the church family locally that are still tuned in online because of the pandemic, but other people around the globe. And we want to say uh, to all of you, we, we really do value your connection, whether you're from this area or, or from far away. Uh, I want to say a special hello today to Emily Furness, who is from the UK and tunes in every week. Emily, we are praying for your grandfather this week. She's got a granddad facing major surgery on Tuesday, so church family. Would you please remember her granddad this week? We love you and are glad to have you tuned in every week. We are in a brand new series today. Uh, this just started this past uh, week, and today we're in the second installment of that. If you weren't here last Sunday, I really want to encourage you to go back and listen to that. I feel like it's one of the more important messages of the year, and it's always available to you online. I'd love for you to dial that in. But we're in a series that's entitled Choices that define us. Now, there are a lot of major choices that we make in life. We tend to think in terms of, when we think about the choices that define us, we may be rushed to decisions like, am I going to go to college? What career am I going to pursue? Am I going to get married? Who am I going to get married to? Is it time to retire? Those kinds of decisions, and those are significant decisions, but we're talking about deeper decisions, decisions that really do define who we are and how we live our lives And uh, today we're certainly going to be pressing into one of the more important ones. And these aren't just once-in-a-lifetime decisions. We're talking about the kind of decisions we have to make day after day and week after week that define not only who we are individually, but who we are as the people of God. And we really do stand at at a place in time right now where... We need to rediscover our identity as the people of God. Wouldn't you agree with that, that, that the church has, in, at least in the expressions that we know of it here in the West, has lost some of its saltiness, it's lost some of its flavor, and we need to rediscover the faith as Jesus intended for it to be. And so this is an attempt to take us back to that. John Maxwell, who is kind of the guru of, of leadership in our generation, said, life is a matter of choices, and every choice that you make makes you. It's very true. Edwin Markham said, choices are the hinges of destiny. That's a pretty profound way to think about it. Really, it's the truth. The choices that you make, really, your future, your fate swings on those things. And today, we're going to talk about one of those fundamental choices. And it is the choice of worship over idolatry. Now, I know there's probably not one person in the room and probably no one who's uh, watching and listening online that got up this morning and said, man, I hope today I can hear a good sermon on idolatry. Hadn't had that in a while. Looking for that. I I realize that is not what you woke up looking for today. And yet I would dare to say that what we're going to talk about today is a very real issue for every single one of us. And what we'll talk about today is one of the fundamental things about getting your life in order. When you think about how God has progressively revealed himself to humanity, when you look at the scriptures and how God did that, we understand that God's revealing himself in nature, and ultimately God's going to progress to the point that he is going to fully reveal himself, his personality and who he is in the person of Jesus, and through the experience of of those of us who are followers of Jesus receiving the spirit of Christ living in us, so we just have this ongoing, very personal, detailed revelation of who God is. But in this progression of God revealing himself and of what it means to be humans made in the image of God, the first really concrete revelation that God gave that had some real definition to it was the law. In Exodus, when God just begins to spell out 
in detail as he has this face-to-face encounter with Moses and he begins to say, these are the things that you need to do to begin to truly live as humans. That's the starting point of this great revelation. And so at the heart of all of the law are ten specific instructions. We all recognize that. Don't we? You know that it's the ten commandments that are the, the centerpiece of the law. And so when you think about living life the way that God intended and for us to really get to the place that we experience life to the full the way that God desired, living by the Ten Commandments, if you think of, of getting it all right, almost sort of looking like a pyramid that progressively we work, our, we work our way up and there are fewer and fewer people who arrive at this place, you know, the pinnacle of the pyramid of living truly the way that God would have us live is not living by the Ten Commandments. That is not the pinnacle. It is the base of the pyramid. You get that, don't you? That the Ten Commandments are not like some ultimate achievement that only a few get to. No, the Ten Commandments are about just separating us from the rest of the wild animals. Don't kill each other. Don't take each other's stuff. Don't steal each other's husbands and wives. Don't lie to each other. And, you know, honor the people who gave birth to you and who raised you. That, that's not a real high target, is it? That, that's not something really high we have to shoot for. That is not the ceiling. That's the floor. That is the beginning of being human. So we, we all are on the same page with that, that this is not some ultimate expression of morality or godliness. This is just the beginning of the experience. When God began to reveal what it means for us to live as he designed and as he desires, the very first things that he addressed, his first two instructions, are what we're going to begin with today. In Exodus 20, in the giving of the, the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments that he gives are, you must not worship any other gods except me, and you must not make any idols. Don't worship or serve idols of any kind. Now, what we're going to talk about today is ultimately about priorities and about loving God above everything else and about God being very first place in your life. And I know when we talk in terms of idolatry, it's easy for us to imagine that idolatry is something that we don't have to worry about because we don't have little figurines at home that we bow down to and worship. But bear in mind, that is not primarily how idolatry is expressed in most cultures. In the ancient past, that was a very common expression. In modern times, it is not. And yet, idolatry is very much an issue for us today. But idolatry is one of the slipperiest sins that has ever been a part of the human experience. Because, much like pride, idolatry and pride are the two things that, that both tend to work this way, very similarly. We can recognize it so clearly and quickly in others, and we will almost never see it in ourselves. Pride is that way. There's hardly anybody around you that's got an issue with pride that got up this morning thinking, man, I, I really need to work on this issue of pride. People who are proud don't realize that the scripture says pride is deceptive. If you've got it, you don't know you've got it. Idolatry is the same way. You can look at other people and go, man, he has got a problem. He obviously has valued something way above his love for God. They've got a real problem with that. But when we look in the mirror, we cannot see it in ourselves. We do not naturally recognize this as an issue in our own lives. But it is an issue for every generation and for every culture. So what is idolatry? And we're going to just press into some questions about what does this look like? What's it doing to us? And how do we address it in our lives? Well, ultimately, idolatry is simply 
placing too much of our attention and affection on an unworthy object. If you want to understand what idolatry is, start with understanding what worship is. When we worship God, worship is all about focusing your mind's attention and your heart's affection on God. Simple enough? That, that's the challenge of worship every time we get together, isn't it? Is We come in the door and our minds are swirling with all kinds of other concerns and, and just the stuff of life. And our hearts are drawn toward all kinds of other things. And worship invites us now to take some focused time to think about the reality of who God is, what he's done, what he means to us so that we focus our mind's attention on him and we turn our heart's affection toward him and we express to him his great worth to us and our love for him. So if that's worship, idolatry is taking that and turning an inappropriate amount of that toward anyone or anything else. It's giving too much affection and attention to something else that isn't God. But right worship has the power to put everything back on track in our lives. And when we worship anything that isn't God, it causes all manner of things to get off the tracks in our lives. So in the next few minutes, what I want to do is just share three questions. I want to ask three questions and from the scriptures seek to answer those three fundamental questions. Now, I'm going to tell you on the front end. Today is one of those messages. It's not going to be too complicated for anybody to understand, but you are going to have to think today. Today isn't going to be a feeling message. Today you're going to have to engage your mind and be willing to look hard in the mirror. Are you okay with doing that today? You're going to track with me in that. All right. The first question is this. What does idolatry look like in the 21st century? When we say the word idolatry, if you think Bible, I bet for many of us, the first picture that comes to mind is the story that's told in Exodus 32. If you grew up in church, you absolutely have heard this story. You know, when the people of God had, as, as a community, had lived in bondage for 400 years in Egypt, started out as a good thing, turned into a very bad thing, and then they've just gotten to the place that they're horribly abused and, and hated, just despised slaves in Egypt, and God feels pity for them, and he begins to work miraculously through uh, Moses to deliver his people. And they get to witness God doing things that would be talked about for the three and a half thousand years since. I mean, we still marvel today to read the things that God did to set his people free. I mean, when you think about the ten plagues that God sent, I mean, that's pretty amazing stuff. And when you work your way all the way up to the plague of the death of the firstborn child of every family where the blood of the sacrifice had not been applied around the, the doorways of the house. I mean, it's just wild, wild stuff that God did. And so he doesn't just deliver his people. He has the hearts of the Egyptians turned toward them in such a way that they get to carry away the gold and silver of Egypt with them. I mean, it's crazy. They go from being slaves to being free overnight, and they walk out with the wealth of the land that they've been in bondage to. I mean, it's, it's it's a wild, crazy story, but you know, as it goes on, they, they are pursued by Pharaoh's army out into the wilderness, and it looks like they're going to die, and then there's this incredible showdown where God parts the Red Sea, they march through on dry ground, and then when the army pursues them, God causes the water to, to come in around them and to drown the army, and, and it's all these scenes where God's leading them with the, the fire by night and the, the cloud by day, and then they make it to, to Mount Sinai, and God is going to now give this great revelation of himself and there's, there's the presence of God descending on the mountain. There's smoke and rumbling. And all of these signs and wonders so that the people are just in awe. 
God is truly God. He is our God. He has worked on our behalf. And you just think, man, these should now be a devoted people. They have seen God show up again and again. He's done radical things to change and improve their lives. These are going to be people who are faithful to God. And Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God and to get instructions from God and to come back down. And before he can come back down the mountain, the people start looking around and going, you know, Moses has been gone for several days. When's that sucker coming back? We're getting kind of bored with just sitting here. Aaron, you're his brother. Why don't you come up with something for us to worship? I mean, Moses keeps telling us about this God that we haven't seen yet. So give us something we can see. Give us a God that we can worship. And so he says, well, bring me your gold and silver and we'll see what we can come up with. And, of course, they create this golden calf. And the people begin to to bow and worship the golden calf. It is a very striking picture of idolatry and the heart of God is broken and angry over this and when Moses descends with the tablets with the Ten Commandments he's had this incredible experience with God and he's coming to share it with the people and what he sees when he gets there is that the hearts of the people have in a matter of days gone from loving God and being so into God to suddenly loving something that their hands have made. And Moses, who is described as the meekest man on earth, which is really ironic if you read the first five books of the Bible, because Moses had a temper, he smashes the tablets with the Ten Commandments and is so angry with the people that he essentially says, you want that little piece of gold to be your God? Well, I hope you enjoy it. He burns it in a fire. He grinds it up into dust. He puts it in the water and says, now drink it. There's your Metamucil to start the day. I mean, that's a, that's a nasty pill to take right there. They literally have to consume the idol. I, I remind you of that story for two reasons. For one, to say that is a form of idolatry, and that is not what idolatry looks like today in, in most modern cultures. So don't think for a minute that because you don't have some statue in your home that you bow to and worship, that I don't have to worry about idolatry because usually it's, it's only ancient cultures or third world cultures where you're going to see that form of idolatry. There are other forms of idolatry that are just as real that just don't look quite like that. But the other reason that I point that out as a picture of idolatry is to remind you. You can be incredibly close to God. You can have in, encounters and experiences with God that are so real and so personal that you will say to yourself... My heart will never stray again. I love Jesus so much. I'll never forget what he's done in my life. We are no different than the Israelites. In a matter of hours or days, a heart that has been so on fire with love for Jesus can find itself loving and chasing after someone or something else just like that. You and I are no different. We have to spend the rest of our lives guarding against the lure and appeal of idolatry. There are all kinds of other things that will invite us to chase after them and love them. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I'm not just going to preach through Romans 1, but we will reference it a number of times in the course of this message because Paul speaks to the issue of idolatry in in such um, clear ways. William Stringfellow said this, Idolatry is pervasive in every time and culture, no less today than yesterday. What does idolatry look like for us today? Well, Paul in Romans one twenty one, as he begins to address this, says this about it. 
he says they knew God. The, the, who is they? The, the people of God. They knew God. So we're not talking about pagans who are, who are far from God and cut off from God. No, we're talking about good folks like you and me. They knew God, but they didn't worship him as God. Now, that's the, this is the problem. You will always get into deep trouble when you cease to deeply love and give your attention and affection to God in worship. They didn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. Friends, you couldn't give a better description of culture and even church culture than that today. We, we love to turn God into what we need for him to be. So they thought up their own foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols. Another translation says, they chose to worship created things other than the creator himself. And this is a just a simple description of what idolatry is. Paul is identifying the root of all idolatry, and that is just replacing the creator with created things that we give our affections and attention to. Idolatry is about putting something ahead of God in our lives, and idolatry ultimately could be expressed this way. It's giving too much value to an unworthy object. And I, I want to read a little, just a little excerpt from a book that I just found so insightful. It's David Nagel's book, <clears throat> Reordered Love, Reordered Lives. And he says this, God is one thing, angels are another, as are people, terriers, red oaks, squash, rocks, and dirt. <clears throat> Each item fits into God's overall scheme of creation. The nature of things in the hierarchy is unchangeable, and so is the kind of satisfaction that it can provide when we are related to it through love. So you get the first part of what he's saying here. In all that God has made, there is a hierarchy, and it starts with God at the top. God, and then created intelligent beings, humans and angels, and beneath that other living creatures, and all the way down to rocks and dirt. Here's what he says about that. Because of these actual differences in things, the outcome of loving each actual thing will be different. There is a divinely designed fit between our needs, the character of the things that can satisfy them, and the way that we should love them in order to be satisfied. Even though each thing that God made is good, delightful, legitimate, and a source of satisfaction as an object of our love, we must not expect more from it than its unique nature can provide. We must give love and praise to things apportioned to their worth. Problems don't arise because we need things or because we love things. Problems arise when we fail to grasp the nature of the objects that we need and love and the expectations that we have regarding the outcome of our love. Do you get what he's saying? In this hierarchy of things that God has created, we get into trouble not because we love things other than God. Everything that God made is good. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. God made this and this and this and this. God made all of these things. And after each thing that he made, he looked at it and said, that is good. I did a good thing there. And it is appropriate that we would enjoy and love all of the things and people that God made. This is not a message today about how it's wrong for you to love and enjoy other things. 
I grew up hearing enough of those kinds of messages. I mean, the kinds of messages like, if you're enjoying it and it isn't named Jesus, then you probably should feel guilty about it. You ever heard that kind of preaching? If you're having fun with it, then it's probably bad, bad, bad. Shame on you. No. You ought to love and enjoy what God has made. But when you get it out of order, when you find someone or something and it's giving you more joy and pleasure and it's attracting more of your time and attention than your love for God, then you're not going to find lasting satisfaction. And what we're going to discover today is it is going to cause the wheels to come off in your life when you've placed too much attention and affection on an unworthy object. So one of the first things that we need to grasp is this, is that idols almost always are not bad things. They are good things. We tend to think of idols as the bad things that we would hold on to. No, 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 no. This is why we don't recognize them for what they are, because they are good things. And the problem is when we turn good things into God things. We take a good thing that was given by God, and we start loving it and giving it more attention than we do the Lord himself and serving the Lord. I said this in your outline, if you want to follow along there, that many of our modern idols are familiar things from our daily lives, such as religion, money, work, sex, recognition, recognition, patriotism. We could just continue the list. Health and fitness. That's a common idol in our culture today. Travel is a common idol. In fact, here's an interesting distinction to note, and it's sort of a generational thing. There are certain generations, and and we'll just say sort of the the older two generations in our current culture today, that their struggle with idolatry tended to revolve more around things. The younger generations, idolatry tends to revolve more around experiences. And that's not just a spiritual observation. I mean, it's just an observation that sociologists have made. That the younger two generations that are adults today... Don't put nearly as much value on the stuff that they possess, the things that money can buy that you can, you know, take home with you. That they they are not nearly as hung up on the house that they've got to own or the car that they've got to drive as generations that have preceded them. That they are much more attracted to the experiences that they can have in life and that they are willing to leverage a lot for the experiences. And past generations put more value on what we could buy and possess and say, that's mine. There's not that one is better than the other. I just make the point to say one of those is probably a big deal to you and one of them is probably not a big deal and they are equally problematic. Now what I want us to consider for a moment is that everything that I just gave in that list of examples is a good thing. And yet every one of those things is very much capable of being an idol for us. Think about the issue of health and fitness and how much that becomes an idol for some. Now, I will tell you, I'll spend several hours this week at the gym, and I'm working hard to eat right and do those things. (laughs) Of all the things that I'll struggle with, and I'll struggle with that idolatry, I will not have that be an idol in my life because I do not look forward to going to the gym. (laughs) I don't love going to the gym. I can make an idol of leaving the gym and coming home from the gym because I love doing that. But for some... That's a huge idol. And they will give more thought, time, attention, and effort 
to having the perfect physique, to having the perfect diet, to, to all of this stuff about health and fitness. And it is a good thing. But when we elevate a good thing to such a high status, it ceases to be a good thing and it becomes a destructive thing for us. Okay, I said I don't struggle with that one. Can I tell you one that is a natural struggle for me? I actually relate to the, the younger two generations in that experiences have more appeal to me. I don't have to own a lot of stuff to be happy, but, man, I love experiences. And I'll tell you a kind of experience that I love. I love to travel. I mean, I love to travel. Been a lot of places, plan to go to a lot more. Been to more than 20 countries around the world. Been to roughly 40 states in the U.S. and want to tackle the ones that I haven't been to. I love to travel. And though retirement is still out there some years away, I love to dream about what retirement will be one day. And where my mind always automatically goes is all the time that I'm going to have free to travel and all the places that I want to go. And I'm just being transparent with you to say one of the things that the Holy Spirit has put his finger on in the last year or two in my life is just those dreams, not trying to kill the dreams, but just trying to keep things in balance and saying, some of your dreams are so far-fetched that it would be impossible for you to be faithful to a church. That it would be impossible for you to truly be involved in a church and give anything back that matters. And it would be very difficult for worship with a church to even be a consistent priority in your life. If you just went to the links that you dream of here, you'd better recognize that if you chase after this to the extent that you dream of it, Travel will have become an idol in your life. Now, that may sound silly to you, but the point is we can make an idol out of anything that we begin to love more than we love God. And can I tell you an idol that has become a very major problem in America today? And again, remember, idols tend to be very good things. Nationalism and patriotism has become one of the most gigantic idols in America today. And I'm saying this as somebody who all of my life have considered myself very patriotic, still consider myself very patriotic. But watching our culture, I've realized how much we have made nationalism and patriotism an idol, something that we value more highly than we should. We esteem it much more than we do the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom for, for many of us. And I don't say this is a criticism at all, but just an observation. One of the most brilliant moves that President Trump ever made whenever he was running for election the first time was he recognized this about the, the nature of Americans, and he capitalized on it in a way that was very helpful for him. The whole thing of make America great again, and, and, and I'm not going political because I don't care how you feel about former President Trump. It was just a brilliant tactical move on his part, the whole thing, make America great again. And he pressed into that so much that it, it struck a nerve for most Americans that, yes, we want America to be the, the greatest land on earth again. And we took a good thing, but we have taken it so far beyond holding that in a healthy balance that our idea of the greatness of America supersedes some things that it shouldn't supersede that we would value certain things that we think are going to make America great when the truth of the matter is we should be far more concerned about the advancement of the kingdom of God than we are about the advancement of the kingdom of the United States, even though we should love and very much appreciate the gift of living in the United States. Lots of things can capture our hearts and cause us to, to love them too much. Ultimately, idols are the result of disordered loves in our lives. 
John's speaking of this in 1 John 2, 15 and following, when he says, Do not love this world nor the things it offers you, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure. There's the experience thing. A craving for everything we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. They are not from the Father, but are from the world. Here's what the world's going to offer you. It's going to offer you an opportunity to have the stuff you want and to tell you that's going to satisfy you or have the experiences that you want or to have the recognition that you desire. And ultimately what the world is trying to feed is a disordered set of loves that you would set your affection on these things and the world's going to go, we'll give you all of that that you want and ultimately it's going to destroy you. So what we find in God's initial instructions in the Ten Commandments is not a bunch of external orders that are designed to modify our behavior. It's easy to read the Ten Commandments that way, isn't it? As if this is the beginning of the defining picture of what faith is supposed to be here's a list of external behaviors now do these things and you'll be a good christian and what jesus helped us to understand is the commandments were never designed to reform external behavior as the beginning point that the commandments always started with the heart when jesus was asked what is the most important command what did he say most important command is this love the lord your god with all of your heart soul mind and strength that's what the first two commandments were all about it was about getting things in order in your heart that you would love God above everything else that you might want to set your heart on. So recognizing that disordered loves will lead to disordered lives, we, we must choose to give love and praise to things in line with their true worth. Okay, for just a moment, I want to consider a second question. Why is this such a big deal? What, what does it do to us if we get this out of balance? Well, idolatry is going to do three different things to you and it will consistently do all three they will deceive you they will distort who you are and they will ultimately destroy you and that's the the path that paul spells out in romans chapter one. First of all idols will deceive us about right and wrong and about what really matters because having idols in your life they're going to consistently give you false promises and false warnings can i just give you examples of what I'm talking about with both of those. Idols will give you false promises. For instance, if fitness and being skinny is the thing that, that we elevate, and wouldn't you agree that that is a huge deal in American culture? The, having the look, having the scale read a certain number. We've, we have just so worshipped this thing. The false promise that that gives you is if you hit this number... If you, if you can achieve this look, you will be content. You will be happy. You will be fulfilled. And it's a lie. You won't be. Because you hit that number on the scale and still you see something you don't like in the mirror. You find something else to be unhappy about. It, it consistently does not work. Wealth is the same way. Wealth comes with a false promise. If you can achieve a certain level of income, if you can achieve a certain level of, of comfort, your life is going to be happy. It's going to be so much better. And yet when you get to that point, the standard always changes. It's always got to be a little bit more. It's exactly what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. The person who loves wealth never has enough. We're given this false promise about the fulfillment that it will bring, and it absolutely will not. In fact, it creates 
a greater hunger or thirst for more. It's like the person who's, who's stranded in a lifeboat on the ocean and they don't have water. And yet they're surrounded by water, but it's salty water. And so the temptation is, well, I'll drink some salty water. But if you've ever read about what happens, you're only in worse shape for drinking salty water. Well, wealth is the same way. It promises you, oh, it's going to quench your thirst. And all it does is create a thirst for more. One more example. I, I, I use the illustration of patriotism. <clears throat> patriotism gives us a false warning when we make it a god. Again, patriotism is a very good thing until you elevated it to, to have a place. And what it begins to do is give you false warnings. You know what those false warnings look like? Again, remember, idolatry always is going to put a twist on things that will deceive us. Here is the false warning of an idolatrous level of patriotism. It begins to inform you as to who your enemies are. It's going to give you false promises and false warnings. And the false warning of idolatrous patriotism is that it's going to tell you that people who are not your enemies really are your enemies. Obviously, you should hate ISIS and Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Those are your enemies. Those crazy Muslims hate them. That's the beginning point. But now the picture swells. So that the people who have a different set of political ideals, if you're a conservative, it's all going to it's going to be all those flaming liberals who want to turn us into socialists and communists. And if you're a liberal, it's all those rock-headed Republicans who are full of themselves. Whichever side you stand on, it doesn't matter. If you elevate patriotism at too high a, to too high of a level, you're going to be deceived into all these false warnings that those people who don't think like you, they are the enemy. They are the threat to American culture, and you're going to be twisted into thinking that you need to fight against them. You need to post against them. You need to rail against them because they are the enemy. And all of that is rooted in deception, which ultimately is birthed out of this kind of idolatry. It deceives us. Idols will also distort who we are on the inside. We don't just think differently. We become different people. Paul, in Romans 1, goes on to say this. People knew God, but they didn't honor him as God. They didn't thank him. They were not, there was not one good thought left in their foolish minds. So God left them and allowed them to have their own worthless thinking. And so they do what they should not do. And they're filled with every kind of sin, evil, greed, and hatred. What Paul begins to describe in Romans 1 is this downward spiral to darker and darker places. And it all starts with not honoring and loving God as first place in our lives. Psalm 115.8 says, Those who make idols will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. You ever noticed how predictable it is that when somebody begins to idolize something in their lives, and by the way, we never call it that, do we? We, we put such better titles. I mean, we're great at labeling things in appealing ways. So here's one of our favorite ways in present times to describe an idol. I'm just passionate about it. She's got a real passion for this. It's my passion. And I'm not saying that's a bad word. It's a good thing to be passionate. It's a good thing to have passion for multiple things. But we love to take something that is an idol in our lives, and we just doctor it up by saying we're just passionate about it. Well, when, people, when we get passionate about things, isn't it amusing and sort of scary how much it will affect everything about us? 
It'll change the way you dress. I'm so passionate about fitness that I just can't go anywhere without having on yoga pants. Boy, that's definitely part of the culture today, isn't it? Ladies, if you don't own yoga pants, I don't know how you go outside anymore. It's like the look of the day. Just we'll change how we dress. We'll change how we spend our money and how we spend our time. We'll even change the language that we use. I mean, have you ever been around friends? They get passionate about something, and suddenly they're using words and just a way of talking that it's like, who, who are you? Well, it's because we're changing on the inside when we have become too passionate about something that isn't Jesus. It, it begins to distort and change who we are. But we need to recognize what this will do to us. David Foster Wallace said this, Pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive if it's not God. Let me mention, I'm just going to name them, four things as examples of what we're talking about. You probably didn't, didn't ever think about it in these terms. But the very thing that you become passionate about, too passionate about, that is the thing that will eat you alive. If you worship money and things... You're never going to have enough, and you're going to constantly be thinking about that and increasingly frustrated about it. Your love for things will eat you alive. If you worship beauty and sexual allure, you will feel ugly and fat. Haven't you known people that that was their thing? They were always doing everything they could, getting it pulled and tucked and and reshaped, trying to be more and more beautiful, and yet more and more consumed with feeling ugly and fat. If you worship power and a sense of control, you will struggle with feeling weak and afraid. If you worship intelligence, count on it. You will feel stupid and frustrated as you discover people around you who are smarter than you are. The very thing that you are tempted to worship will eat you alive. And then the final thing that we said... Idols deceive us, they distort us, and ultimately idols destroy us because they put us at odds with God and with his created order. You realize God created a moral universe. There is an order to how things work in the world that God created. And when you work, when you live your life out of step with the universe that God made, picture almost this big, complicated machine with all different kinds of gears and things that have to fit together and work together. And when we love and honor something ahead of God, we become like a gear that's moving in the wrong direction in God's moral universe, and it just begins to grind us up. Now, the next part of what I'm fixing to share is not designed to hurt or offend anyone, but it will be as politically incorrect as anything that I could stand and say. So I need you to hear me out in the next few minutes. Paul says in Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. We haven't heard much about the wrath of God lately in church ever. But Paul said the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And he goes on to describe what that looks like when he says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Again, God gave them over to shameful lusts. God gave them over to a depraved mind. When I was a boy growing up, my older brother and I, one of the greatest achievements of our growing up years was we worked and saved our money and we bought a used go-kart frame and a clutch for $40 from Jamie Boutwell up the street. That's all we could get for $40 was the clutch and the frame. 
And then we worked and worked and saved until we could go and buy a five-horsepower motor, a little engine, brand-new engine. And we mounted it on there ourselves, and we got, for the first time in our lives, a running go-kart. If you had given us a wild stallion, we wouldn't have been as happy as we were about that used go-kart frame with that five-horsepower Briggs & Stratton engine on there. And we ran that thing for all it was worth. And it just felt to us like we were going 100 miles an hour. I have spent more hours on a go-kart than most of you could dream of. We wore that thing out. But we had a neighbor. He got a go-kart, too. And we loved to go over to the high school a block from our house. And we'd ride all over the grounds of the high school. Drove the principal crazy. We just, anytime we'd see him, we'd run for all we were worth. But we got a neighbor. And he got a go-kart. And his go-kart would go so much faster than ours. And I'm, I'm man through and through. Even as a boy, I'm like, there isn't anything more insulting than somebody can outrun your go-kart. Just drove us crazy. And then we found out why his go-kart would outrun ours. He had taken the governor off the engine of his go-kart. There, there is a way you can rig that kind of little engine you know what the governor does on an engine? It keeps an engine from running faster than it is designed to because an engine will essentially blow itself up if it's not restricted in what it, it does. So the governor's put on there to only let it run up to a certain speed. Well, he had, he had done a workaround on his, and for a little while he was able to run faster than any other go-kart in town because he got rid of the governor on his and he, his had a different sound because it ran without that, that thing on it. And he could smoke the rest of us until the day he blew his motor up. Friends, that silly little story is a picture of what we just read about. Paul said the wrath of God is being revealed. When God reveals his wrath, he does it in one of two ways. Sometimes we will see the active wrath of God where he is so bothered and offended by something that's going on that he brings the hammer down and he brings, he personally brings suffering, justice, whatever is needed to address evil in a particular situation. And we could all give examples of what that looks like. But there are many other situations, and particularly in the lives of his children, where there's a different expression of the wrath of God, and it is the passive wrath of God. That God doesn't come in and actively punish his children. What Paul describes that he does is, and he says it three different times in Romans 1, so God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over to this. And you know what he's doing when he gives people over? He's taking the governor off the engine. He is, he is withdrawing his loving controls and protection that keep you from running in such a way that you blow up the engine. And he's saying, I'll just take that covering off. What he's saying in this passage is, okay, you know who I am. You know what I've called you to. You know the love relationship that I've invited you to. You know the first instructions that I've given you about our relationship. But if you are absolutely determined that you're going to love this person or this thing, or this pursuit, more than you love me, I'm not going to come along and hammer you for that. I'm just going to take the covering off. I'm going to take the governor off, and I'm going to let you run wide open. And so over and over it says, so God gave them over. He just gave them over. And Romans 1 goes on to describe 
the kinds of things that happen when God takes the governor off the engine. And let me tell you exactly what he describes in Romans 1. He points to the sexual pursuits of a culture where God's passive wrath has just given them over. And he describes exactly what's happening in American culture today. And he says, people will pursue sexual satisfaction. This is a consistent thing in culture after culture where people don't honor God as first place. They will pursue sexual gratification, sexual satisfaction in such a way that it moves outside the boundaries of what God has defined and and designed. I mean, it's beautiful to understand what God planned for our sexuality. I mean, I I love it. When you see it for what it's worth, God says, I have made you, among other things, sexual beings, to get incredible pleasure and satisfaction out of your sexuality. And in fact, if you will just follow the guidelines that I've given you, that you make a lifelong commitment to one other person, and within that, you can have as much sex with as much freedom and creativity as you want to. That is yours. Enjoy that playground to the full. And all God's people should say amen. Because that is a beautiful, free, liberating picture. But when we decide to go outside the boundaries that God has given, and we say, can't believe God's told me that I only get to do this with one person. Because I would be so much more satisfied if I could go just outside the fence and be with her. If I could have him as my husband. If I could have this experience. And we find ways to cross those boundaries, whether it's through pornography or an inappropriate relationship. And we try and just, we think we're going to control this. We're just going to stick our toe in the water to begin with. We're just going to dabble in this thing. If we could just have just a little bit more than what God has prescribed. And we start loving this experience more than we love God. Paul says, a culture can experience this where God goes, if that's what you want more than, what you, more than you want me, I'll let you try that. You want something else to be your God? Have it. And let me know how that works out for you. He's done that with American culture. And Paul says what happens when you do that is the governor is removed and you don't just have a relationship with a second person and a third person. What happens is you get distorted on the inside. And he says the normal cravings that you would have for your husband, for your wife, that becomes so distorted that eventually, he says, people begin to have unnatural desires. Men start desiring other men and women start desiring other women. And they become inflamed with this and they can't be satisfied with anything but this homosexuality becomes a defining mark within the culture. And that's very true in America today. I mean, you can't escape it. I mean, now you can't have a television show without having to have significant gay characters in the show. It's it's just the norm. Major companies today that that do TV advertising, if they're going to do many commercials, they've got to work gay people into the commercials. And I'm not bashing the programs or the or the advertisers for that, I'm simply saying that is an expression of just how far we've gone in this. And, and I need you to hear everything I'm going to say about this today. Don't just pull one little excerpt out to go bash somebody because that's the last thing you should be doing with what we're talking about today. Paul is describing a progressive downward spiral. Let me tell you what the next layer of this progression is. When we become so obsessed with our sexuality and we make this a god for us, it becomes an idol for us, there's another level 
beyond these out-of-bounds pursuits of, you know, I'll have an affair, I'll have sex before marriage, I'll, I'll let pornography be a significant part of my life, I'll dabble with, you know, bisexual lifestyle, gay lifestyle. There's another level beyond that where we begin to, with no governor in place and with the culture changing the way that it does, we begin to struggle with our own sexuality to the point that more and more people get confused and disoriented about their own sexuality. Not just who they're attracted to, but who they are in their own identities. And people begin to say in massive numbers, I think I may be a woman in a man's body. I think I may be a man in a woman's body. Friends, I'm not condemning anybody for that. You need to recognize what is happening and what it's doing to people. And if, if you feel the need to condemn anybody for that, then I would suggest you need to get to know somebody who is struggling with that because it is heartbreaking. It is devastating to watch. It is not just, a, hey, I think I'll have some fun playing with this. It is a destructive place to be. And if you don't think that's a fact, let me tell you how this works itself out large percentage of the time the people who think remember there are all kinds of false promises that come with idolatry and an idolatrous culture and the false promises if you would pursue this if you would just continue down this road you'll find fulfillment by being the thing you really were made to be you may have been born into a male body but you're really a woman and if you would just go the whole way of dress the part look the part have the transition surgery you're going to find fulfillment you want to know how much of a lie that is in america more than 40 percent of the people who have sexual reassignment surgery more than 40 percent attempt suicide afterwards that's a fact there are major major hospitals in america who will no longer even do that surgery because of the massive numbers of people who try to kill themselves after the fact because they arrive at that destination and find out it was a lie now this message was not a cleverly designed ploy to get to talk about homosexuality or transgender issues i'm simply saying that because this is the illustration that paul uses in romans 1 and it is true in america and the answer be clear on this. The answer is never to say, shame on those wicked people. Shame on those perverts. You ought not to do that. I want to tell you that doesn't help anybody. Trying to shame someone because of their struggle. Can I tell you something that we don't want to own? Most of the people who struggle with the kinds of issues that we're talking about didn't get there because they decided they wanted to chase that. I believe, based on what the scriptures teach, that the way they got there in large part is they were born in an idolatrous culture, in a culture where we fail to honor God as our God, as our first priority. And as a culture, we have experienced the passive wrath of God that says, if you don't want me to be God, I'll let you try life without that, and let's see how that goes for you. And part of what happens with that is a culture consistently, I could show it to you in history again and again and again. Again, this same story gets repeated. The same sexual issues, the same loss of sexual identity, the same lies that are believed, and a culture implodes because we believe these lies. We become so deceived and so distorted, and we ultimately destroy ourselves. The antidote is not to rail against homosexuality and rail against people who struggle with same-sex attraction or sexual identity issues. That is never the solution. There is only one solution, and that is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength.
for the church to reemerge in love with Jesus. When we get our priorities in order, this is what it's going to look like. We'll love God more than anything else, and we will love our neighbors like we love ourselves. And gradually, the culture will begin to shift, and we will not chase after sexual expression and all these other things first. We will find our satisfaction in Him. That's the truth. And no matter how much the culture makes, wants to make us believe that this is archaic, this was just what they believed in the first century, we're progressive, 2,000 years later, this doesn't apply. Friends, the very things that Paul says in Romans 1 are just as true today as they were then. And we have to be a part of seeing us reemerge as a healthy culture again. Jeremiah 2.11 says this, Has a nation ever changed its gods, yet they're not gods at all? But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. The only antidote for idolatry is to rightly order our lives and our priorities. So the final question, we'll be brief with this. How do we respond to idolatry? How do we set this right? Well, first of all, let me just point out, there are some really common wrong responses. Religious people will give a religious response, which is to focus on human wisdom and human effort to overcome these things, and it does not work. Where somebody has set their heart on, on an idol, we, we will tell them, here, here are the three steps to stop loving that thing so much, and it does not work. There's also secular responses, and the secular response is equally pitiful, but the secular version is to trade dysfunctional idols for more acceptable ones. Can I just give you an example of this? read recently a lady giving a, an account of how her life had gotten really to just a destructive place because she was living in a destructive relationship. She loved a man who's a very unhealthy man. He was very cruel to her. And even though he would do hurtful things to her again and again and again, she would always go back to him or let him back in. And she's like, this is crazy. Why am I doing this? So she goes for therapy to deal with this. And her therapist says all the things that you expect a therapist to say. And along the way, what the therapist trains her to see and, to, and you know, teaches her to pursue is you've got to realize how destructive this relationship is and, and just you know, how much you've become fixated on this and, and you've become codependent. That, that's been the issue in your life. So what you've got to do is let go of that relationship, go back to school, pursue your degree, pursue your career, and ultimately here's the goal in your life. You need to become an independent woman who never needs anyone. And this became the mantra goal in your life become an independent woman who never needs anyone thankfully at the same time that she was getting all of this counsel from her therapist she was also in church and was experiencing spiritual renewal in her life as she was coming to a close relationship with jesus and what the lord revealed to her was that her therapist was inviting her to exchange a really unhealthy idol for a much more socially acceptable idol Swapping the idol of a destructive sexual relationship, and in place of that, having an idol of total independence. I don't need anyone or anything. I'm an independent woman. I can stand on my own, and I don't need anybody. And that's just trading idols. And what God showed her was that what she needed was a deep, intimate love relationship with Jesus that met that deep need in her life that wasn't about creating a great sense of independence but a healthy sense of dependence on God and dependence on brothers and sisters in a community of faith. 
Neither of those are good solutions. The secular solution or the religious solution. But there are biblical solutions to idolatry. Just very quickly, three healthy responses to combat idolatry. In the U.S. legal system, there is what is known as the ultimate rule of recognition, and it is the U.S. Constitution. You know how that works. Any law that's passed in America, the ultimate standard that it has, has to be held up against that is the ultimate rule of recognition is the Constitution. No law is valid if it goes against the U.S. Constitution. That is our ultimate rule of recognition. Well, all of us need an ultimate rule of recognition, and that is to make sure that whatever it is that we love, whoever it is that we love, that we measure it against the ultimate rule of recognition, and that is our love for God. I can't love, pursue, give myself to anything or anyone more than I do God. So here are three specific things that we do to to bring those things in check. First of all, Forsaking all others, you give your heart fully to God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3, For I am jealous for you with the jealousy that comes from God. Remember what the Lord said about that in the commandments, that he's a jealous God. He must be your only husband, and I want to give you to Christ to be his pure bride, but I am afraid that your minds will be led away from your true and pure following of Christ. It's this very simple but powerful picture. Paul said, I love you with this jealous kind of love, and I am committed to this, that I want to give you to Jesus so that he is your spouse. He alone is your spouse. Can you imagine this? For everybody in the room who's married or ever been married, can you imagine going into a marriage, and you come back from the honeymoon, and for the first time you go into what is going to be your home together, and the surprise that your spouse has for you that they don't even announce is that they have held on to all of the mementos of their love for everybody that they've loved before you. And they start hanging pictures on the wall of all of these romantic scenes of past boyfriends and lovers. And they you know, place the love letters from the past in prominent places to cherish all of the loves in their lives. How's that going to work out for you? Not so swell, right? That doesn't work. And Paul is saying, you need to understand, Jesus loves you with a jealous kind of love that says, I want you to so put me first that there is no question that I am the great love of your life. Some of us are holding on to things that we love as much as we love Jesus. And this is not just a matter of what we tell ourselves. When you look at how you spend your time and your money and your energy, it will tell you a whole lot about where it stands in relation to Jesus. The beginning point of making this right for some of us is to just repent. It is just to confess, Jesus, I have loved something or someone more than I've loved you. And as good as that thing or that person may be, it is a sin against you to love them at that level. I want to put you first. I want you to be the first true love of my life. Till you can see idolatry as spiritual adultery, you'll dismiss it as unimportant. The second thing that we must do is invite a spiritual MRI of our heart each day from the Holy Spirit. David said in Psalm 139, Look deep into my heart, God, and find out everything that I'm thinking. Don't let me follow evil ways, but lead me in the way that time has proven true. Recognizing that idolatry is such a slippery sin, that it's it's so well camouflaged, we're not going to easily recognize it. Every day, invite the Holy Spirit, search me. Show me the, the stuff that I may be loving too much. And don't be afraid of this. 
God isn't going to pry everything loose from your fingers. He, he wants you to love and enjoy people and things, but he just wants you to do it with healthy balance. And then finally, fully engage each week in worship with your local church, what we're doing here today. Hebrews 10.25 says, Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now. Look, here's just one of the simple checks. When work, when sports, when kids' activities and sports commitments, when hunting season, when fishing, when those things become so dominant in my life, that they begin on a regular basis to interfere with my ability to be here in worship, there's a really good chance I have an idol in my life. When these kinds of commitments cause me to really step back and when somebody invites me to be involved in serving in a meaningful way in the church, an active way of, of expressing my love for God, and I'm like, I just don't know about that because... You know, hunting season's coming in about three months, and, and so for two or three months, you're probably not going to be seeing me. There's a real good chance there's an idol there. And instead of making excuses, we need to just take a hard look in the mirror and say, am I truly loving God ahead of everything else? The experience of worship is a transformative thing. James Smith, the American-Canadian philosopher, said this, Christian worship is one of the primary arenas in which we participate in the practices that shape who we are. We live in a world that is constantly drawing us toward idolatry. It is constantly inviting us to give our hearts to someone or something else. And church is a counterformative community. It reverses the effect of the world on us. And we, we experience that in worship. We don't come here primarily for entertainment we don't come here primarily for the social interaction it's nice that we get those things we don't come here primarily for the educational value i hope you learn something when you come in here but if that's all we got is man i was with good friends and tony and the music were great and i learned a lot if that's all we get then we failed we did not worship if that's all that happened because worship is more than that worship is, is designed to get us in touch with God in such a way that it changes us while it's happening. When the church gathers and we collectively offer our hearts to God, power is unleashed and we are changed in those moments. As Christ reveals himself, power is poured out and we get changed in that. While we are worshiping, something is happening. Our hearts that have been getting attached to all these things in the world begin to be less attached there. And we just begin to see the worth and the goodness and the glory of God. And something is different. We just want to shout with every part of our being, Hallelujah! Glory to the risen King. He is good. He is worthy of our best. He is worthy of all of our time. There is no sacrifice that is too great for Him. He's paid everything for me. He is worthy worship changes us and if it doesn't we didn't worship and anything that would consistently keep us from that is a real danger and likely an idol and there's only one solution to an idol in our lives and that is to repent and turn to god and to say I want you to be first place. And I realize I don't just change that in a moment of time. I'm going to immerse myself in situations that
help to transform my heart and who I am and how I think to love God more. It's a fundamental choice in life. It's a choice that defines us. It's about our priorities and deciding God is worthy of our best. He is worthy to be first place. And if he is, then this shared experience is worthy of a high priority in my life as well. Would you join me as we turn to him together in prayer? God, you are good and you are worthy of our best. Please forgive us for all the times when we didn't order our lives in that way. Forgive us for all the times where spending time with you was such a low priority. For all the times when we made worship such a low priority. We've let chores, careers, kids, activities, and all these other things displace you in our lives. We don't want to make excuses. We just ask you to forgive us and change our hearts, oh God. Why don't you just, in a simple way right now, invite God to search your heart. And if there's anything that you're holding on to at an idolatrous level, ask him just to put his finger on that, just to show it to you. And if there's anything that God brings to mind, would you just agree with him about that? That's what confession is. And would you just commit, God, whatever you show me that I need to let go of, I'll let go of with your help. If there's something that I just need to reprioritize, I commit to that. Would you just agree with God in making the needed adjustments? And now ask him another question. Lord, What's one tangible thing that I can do in my life to live out the reality of making you my top priority? And as God gives you a picture now or in the hours or days that follow of what that looks like, would you just commit to that? Lord, we trust you. We trust you to... Show us how to reorder our lives. We want you to be the center of everything that we do. I pray that you would make of us a people who truly love you more than anything else and who, as a result of that, love each other well and love ourselves well. Thanks for your work among us. Holy Spirit, continue what you've started here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I surely hope that what you heard was relevant and helpful and above everything. I hope that what you experienced today really helped your heart to connect with the heart of God. Now, if what you heard uh, for you stirred up any questions or maybe led you toward uh, some type of spiritual decision, maybe you want to talk with someone about something that's on your mind, I would love to hear from you. And so I would encourage you, reach out by email. At the bottom of the screen, you see my email address. It's mark at myfreedomchurch.net. That's not going to go to a secretary or an assistant. That will come directly to me. I'd love to hear from you and talk with you about anything that's on your mind. And if in the future you're in our area, we would love for you to come and worship with us at Freedom Church. But until then, we invite you to access all of the sermon material that you find online. Again, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Hope that you have a great day.